You're listening to Notes from Norwich. We're now recording and we're back from a little bit of a breakaway. This is episode number 16 of Notes from Norwich. And we took a couple of weeks off because we have real lives and it's the summer and some of us were traveling. Some of us had stuff going on. So uh, hello to all of our listeners who missed us terribly, I'm sure, during the last couple of weeks that we were away. But we're back now. It's episode 16, and my name is Chris, and I'm one of the three hosts of this show, along with you two. JM. JM Koshner. We're terrible at that. <laughs> I always clean it up in post-production. Make us sound good like we've just stacked it one after another. Um, so, Okay. Where did we leave off? So we're talking about chapters 36 and 37 in the Revelations of Divine Love. Where, where do we begin? Our Lord God showed me that a deed shall be done, and he himself shall do it. It shall be honorable and marvelous and fruitful and through me it shall be done, and he himself shall do it. So Julian is talking about a plan that God has for the human race, for creation, and he will be using human beings. She says she herself, but she later um, confirms that what she means is all of, all of humanity will be part of this deed that God will do, and it will be wonderful. And this is part of the way that everything will be made well. This is part of the way that the that creation will be healed, finally and ultimately, and how... Everything bad will go away and everything good will be increased and magnified and glorified and and made real and firm and true. So I'm reminded in here that this is the chapter where I first encountered this, this puzzle, right? When I first read this, I was still fairly new to Christianity. So I was being introduced to all these theories of what happens at the end of time. Um, pre-millennialism and post-millennialism and all these other things that I still don't quite understand. Is Jesus coming back first and then there's the culmination of all time? Or, you know, I think my brain gets scrambled with all of it. And I don't, I think that's actually something that we can't know with as much scientific certainty as some people think we can figure it out. But so when I was first reading this, the revelations, and I first encountered this idea of the great deed that God shall do, in my mind, I said, oh, okay, clearly that's talking about whatever it is that happens on the last day, because that's the culmination of everything. And certainly this great deed is going to be like the cherry on the pie on the top of the Sunday. That's the metaphor. Um, uh, or it's going to be the like the final big movement in the symphony or something like that. But then uh, 
here in chapter 36, she says this, this deed shall be begun here and it shall be honorable to God and plentiful beneficial to his lovers on earth. And ever as we come to heaven, we shall see it in a marvelous joy and it shall be last thus in operation until the last day. And that I had to go back and read that several times when I first read it, because this whole time I'd been thinking that when she's talking about the great deed that God is going to do, that that is the same thing as whatever it is that is put right on the last day. But what she has just said in this part of this revelation is that God is going to perform this great deed and it shall then last in its effects until at some point after that, the last day arrives. So there's the great deed and there's the last day and they're not the same thing. And that I found confusing because like I said, I'd been assuming one thing and it turned out not to be that way. So um, two things. One, um, I think the way I read it, it shall last thus in operation until the last day. I read that as it continuing to be worked out until the last day, less so than it happens and then its effect endures to the last day. Two, um, I, I too have been confused by this, but then towards the end, actually, yeah, towards the end of chapter 36, she distinguishes between two deeds, um, which I think is key for understanding this puzzle. Um, not that she gives us uh, the, <laughs> the tools to have as schematic a view of end times as like the Left Behind series, Catholic edition, but I think um, she's, she's p- painting the picture of this deed that is worked out through humanity starting now and extending into the future until the last day. And then the great deed, capital G, capital D, um, that she talks about the Lord accomplishing at the last that we cannot know. So the, the deed, the deed that is work being worked out through her, through humanity, she thinks we can know in part which I think makes sense if it's being worked out in us. Um, But she seems to distinguish that from the final tying together of everything in the great deed that makes everything well, you know? Right. The great deed mentioned before previous chapter shall neither be known in heaven nor earth until it is done. Which then begs the question for me, if, if we can know this deed in part, not the great deed that she's talked about before, but this deed that's being worked out in us, what is that deed that we can know in part? What is happening here that she's describing? Well, there's not much in the text that tells us what that is, but we can think of it. I can think of it 
I do think of it as um, the kingdom of God on earth, which which Jesus brought to us in his in his ministry, and that being a great mystery, Jesus being incarnate on this earth affected and affects everything on the earth, every single thing, every person, every being, every blade of grass is affected by that incarnation. And the kingdom had, the kingdom began with that. The kingdom of God began with that, was brought to earth through Jesus in his incarnation. And so every now and then, we can look around and and say, oh, there it is. And it might be something someone says. It might be a gust of wind. It might be anything. It might be, it might be the, the cry of a hawk. It, it could be anything. Someone driving by and, you know, having some silly bumper sticker. It can be anything. But we can say, oh, Oh, there it is. Oh, that's it. And that's how we are participating in it just by the fact that we are going through our lives. Because she says here, I can do nothing but sin. I mean, that's really, you know, this is is just part of existence. And so it's not like we are um, bringing the kingdom. We have no um, effort that we can make to make this deed happen better or faster or more smoothly or with more sparkles or anything like that because we just we aren't we can't we just can't so that's how that's that's how i read it for whatever that might be worth So once upon a time, a few years ago here at my parish, I did one of those um, like stump the priest, stump the preacher sort of things where I had a, a box up front with a slot in the top and you could write questions on a slit of, slip of paper and drop it into the box. And then at some um, Sunday in the future, I would preach a sermon answering that question. Um, I would prepare it. When I do that at summer camp, uh, I just sit there and with the kids and just pull questions right out of the box and see them for the first time and then have to come up with an answer. I wasn't that brave when it came to the adults. Um, so I, I actually prepared something. Uh, so one of the questions that I dealt with was um, what is heaven like? What do we mean? What does the Bible mean when we talk about heaven? Is it a place? How How do we think about it? Particularly, the question went on as, you know, modern scientific people who know that, like, up is a, a, a strange concept when you're on a spherical planet. Um, uh, and we have access to telescopes and things like that. So I said that my kind of my working definition of heaven is that it is a realm, but maybe a physical location, maybe a sphere of, of existence. I don't know, but it is a place where two characteristics are purely 
dominant within that realm. And the first is that the presence of God is undeniably recognizable. That And there's descriptions in Scripture, and I wove all these in, and I can't do it now because I don't have them in front of me. But places in Scripture where people like Ezekiel describes going to heaven, and it it's and you know the book of revelation talks about it as well and and when you are there in heaven the presence of god is is this dominant and overwhelming force you cannot deny the presence of god when you're in heaven so the presence of god is the one characteristic of heaven and the doing of god's will is the other characteristic of heaven that in in Heaven's characteristic is that it is a place where the whole thing is motivated by nothing other than God's will. You know, we say that in the Lord's Prayer, right? That God's will may be done on earth as it already is in heaven. We want earth to reflect that that heaven, heavenly reality. So whether it's um, a time or a place or a, another dimension or what, those are the two dominant characteristics of heaven, the presence of God and the doing of God's will. So it's possible to see glimpses of heaven on earth wherever you have an experience as a, as a person of the presence of God in such a way that you can't deny it. And most of us can get through a lot of life um, denying the presence of God or having a hard time seeing the presence of God. And, we can also have glimpses where our will and God's will lines up perfectly and you can perceive it. And we all know that there are times and places where God's will is not done and sometimes actively and aggressively opposed on earth, consciously opposed. So I think that there are therefore these places on earth where that presence of heaven punches through and can be felt with the presence of God, uh, the nearness of God, and also the, the, the alignment of everything towards God's will at that time and place. So where that goes with these kind of two deeds that, um, that Julian is talking about here is that the great deed, as I envision it at the end of it all, is something to do, something like that descent of the new Jerusalem onto, into earth at the end of Revelation 20 and 21, where the heavens and earth come together and where the, the earth, this material earth, becomes a place where those two characteristics of God, of heaven, are perfectly realized, the presence of God and the doing of God's will. But for those of us who are um, moving into the Christian life, and arguably for those of us who aren't but are spiritually attuned in the right ways, um, that awareness of the presence of God and the alignment of our wills with the divine will begin to make heaven chronically present in our own lives in fleeting ways. Um, and so I, I have a suspicion that that kind of um, the, the hints of the story yet to come, and then that merging of heaven and earth, that those are the two deeds that she talks about 
and I could be completely wrong, but I sounded very impressive as I was telling you. <laughs> so, um, and, and those two deeds, of course, then like harmonize, like it's the foretaste, the shaping and the transformation that happens in individuals, in my heart and your heart. And, and then it, at some point in the future, it will just become the only reality that is. I don't know what happens to those who are not part of that reality. If either they're transformed in an instant or they're just removed from the picture. That's God's business, I suppose. So thank you for coming to my TED talk (laughs) on what heaven is. Thank you. Both that and Marguerite, what you said, I think they, they fit together nicely and provide a compelling alternative to the other direction where I could see this being taken, which, um, if I'm remembering my evangelical eschatology right, would be like a optimistic post-millennialism. Um, basically, that the world gets progressively closer and closer to the kingdom of heaven until we kind of realize it. So it's, it's sort of this um, this crescendo. Um, Whereas what I what I think um, what I hear from you guys is that the, these are inbreakings. These are these are moments where the veil is pierced, and um, we get foretastes. But it's not this kind of wave that like builds and sweeps through. This is a these, these are fragmentary tastes that hopefully in our own lives build up. Um, but it's not a sort of uh, sweeping conquest through time. It, it's a uh, savoring the crumbs until that last day. Is that fair? Does that resonate with what you all have said? Or am I reading into it? That sounds like what I said. That's that's exactly what I said. Um, I'm. This is irrelevant to this, but I did not know that there was this crescendo, ever posited that things would just get better and better and better and better. Wow. Okay. Okay. That kind of dovetails with that kind of what do they call it? The Whiggish view of history. that the yeah w h i g wig the the Whiggish progressive concept of history, which is that you know it's a side effect of beginning to see you know the enlightenment and all that stuff in western europe and and it and it, the United States in its inception that like we've just we figured out how to use our brains, and so the combination of reason and capitalism is just going to make us infinitely smart and mm-hmm. uh this kind of was the dominant theme of modernism for several centuries and then uh, uh i think we're we're beginning to see that crumble as we've realized that we are smart enough to create as many intractable problems as we solve um 
and that drone delivery of ice cream doesn't actually seem to solve the ecological crisis or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think there, there was a lot of confidence and that spilled over into, into schools of theology that we're just going mm-hmm. to, it's very Pelagian, isn't it? Like we're going to perfect ourselves until God puts the final blessing on it. I think it's, it's often Pelagian though. It also, um, has other manifestations that I think are more linked to a sort of Protestant integralism. This idea that 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 Whiggish imagination of progress kind of sometimes gets baptized, and so the state becomes the agent of realizing the church. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 come becomes very popular in sort of conservative reformed evangelical circles because and and it and it informs the kind of culture wars because it is it is through winning those culture wars that the kingdom of god is made manifest um i don't want to get too much in the weeds on this because i think it's very foolhardy eschatology to dig into that but what all that to say what you two have presented i think is a compelling alternative um, to that foolhardy eschatology that um, could, I think, very easily be read into what Julian is saying. Oh. Um, I think it, I think it, w- I see, I see in this, this chapter um, a ripe field for the kind of perspective that, well, the church and Christians are just going to make it progressively better and better. Um, and I, I, I am grateful for the framing that you gave of these, these foretastes, these inbreakings um, that accumulate in our lives, but ultimately are just um, things we, the crumbs we savor until this capital G great deed that we cannot know is made manifest. And it's it's um it's not like this this deed this uh this deed that happens now is fully revealed to us and and she does make a point of saying that this is this is something that is revealed to us only in part, and that there are there are things about this that are concealed, and God wishes that we acknowledge that they are concealed and that we delight in that with him. Yeah. She says, then we ought to rejoice in him both for all that he shares shows and for all that he hides so that God's hiding things from us is a blessing as well as God's showing things to us and, and, and our confidence should increase because of that hiding. And I think it was a pretty big step for Julian because she was always asking questions. She always mm-hmm. wanted answers, answers, answers all the time. And for her to say that having things hidden from us is a blessing to us and we should rejoice in it, God wants us to rejoice in it, is um, 
well, that was a revelation of divine love, I think. Mm-hmm. That'd be a good name for a book. All right. Help me out, you two. I mean, help me out with lots of things, but with this in particular, and this is on page 83 of the orange book, if you have that. Um, but if not, then here's me reading it to you. And as long as we are in this life, whenever we, by our folly, turn to paying attention to the reprobate, capital R, reprobate, what's the reprobate? What's Satan? Don't you think? I I, I would say it as, I I see it as Satan, but the, uh, sort of the summation of Satan and sin. And I, I, I read it as the reprobate, meaning all those things that are reprobate or that category of thing that is reprobate. Um, and so I, 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 what she's doing here, I think is again, redirecting our gaze that if, if we dwell too much by our folly, we we dwell on our sinfulness, on the the sin in the world, on Satan and his works. Um, then then that is folly, and God is calling us to occupy ourselves with Him. And so, just just as as she a few chapters earlier kind of redirected our gaze back to the cross mm-hmm. from uh, from delving into the mysteries, I think she's here. Saying, well, your your gaze has wandered to sin and to the misery and to the reprobate. Here, nudge nudge your gaze back to look at God. Because here she again says, I am enough for thee. So I think the reprobate is is this kind of shorthand for all the evil that she's referenced up to this point. That's how I read it. Sounds good. Yeah, I went back on it, forth on it, because it because it is capitalized. I thought an argument could be made that it is a euphemism for the devil, like the adversary. Mm-hmm. But an argument could also be made in my own mind for um, uh, a dwelling on her own past faults uh the same way that some of us and sometimes i do it myself um uh allow our own self-identities to be kind of a summary of all of our worst stuff and Mm -hmm. and especially if she's trying to and this is certainly true for for many of the kind of the writers on the spiritual life there's a reflection that um, the first steps of progress on the spiritual life are profoundly uncomfortable because it's like for the first time you become aware of of the extent of God's goodness and mercy and um, and you become so aware of it that almost immediately you also become profoundly aware of your own insufficiencies. And this can be very painful. So these first steps of you know, progress in the spiritual life, which should feel like a movement towards joy and light 
often immediately throw you into a very uncomfortable place of of um, of shadow. So I so I I I argued myself into that possibility as well that um, that the exam the self examination that could cause her to dwell on her own life is met tenderly by God saying, you know, I know you're focusing on your spiritual growth, but don't forget that this is not about your past and all the bad stuff you've done. And yes, Julie and you, like everyone else, have done plenty of bad stuff. But here I am, the Lord God, touching us and blessedly calling us, sing in our soul, let me be all thy love, my dear worthy child. Occupy thyself with me, for I am enough for thee, and rejoice in thy Savior and in thy salvation. I think that's, I think that's spot on. And I think the, the earlier reading that you considered, where it is Satan, can be drawn into that, in, in Satan's role as the accuser. Is what what you're describing in that uh, in her being preoccupied with the first stages of the spiritual life? I I think that um, the the temptation to define yourself by the summation of your sins um, is a work of the accuser of Satan. Oh yes. Um, <clears throat> And so I think in, in naming the reprobate, I see her as encompassing both that preoccupation with our sins and our sinfulness and that spiritual force that constantly incites us to be preoccupied with that rather than God. Towards the end of chapter 36, there's a little um, a little insight into the working of miracles. Do we want to consider that before moving on to chapter 37? Yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Any particular thoughts you're curious about? The working of miracles. It is known that I have done miracles here before, many and very exalted and astounding, honorable and great. (laughs) The best miracles. (laughs) Fantastic miracles. Nobody does such great miracles. And just as I have done in the past, so I do now constantly and shall do in the course of time. It is known that before miracles come sorrow and anguish and tribulation, and that is so that we would know our own feebleness and our misfortune that we have fallen into by sin in order to humble us and cause us to fear God, crying for help and grace. Is that the bit you're wondering about? Um, That, but also um, I have a more fundamental struggle um, in that for all all my Catholic piety and my mystic, my bent towards mystical theology, I struggle to identify and 
hope for continued miracles. I'm not a cessationist in theory. I do think that the Holy Spirit continues to pour out gifts. And yet there is a, uh, a temptation that I struggle with to discount the possibility of ongoing miracles. Um, what would you count as a miracle, Jan? I thought you I might mean, ask that. Is this something like that would be on the news? You know, like a storm being averted in some bizarre way, the Spanish Armada being turned around. I mean that that is the the, the place <laughs> that my mind goes immediately, and and even even as that happens, I realize that that is an unnecessarily narrow definition of miracle. Um, but I think, um, the, the temptation is to discount any God working through any extraordinary means. Um, and I, and I want to name it as a temptation. I, I don't see it as a particularly healthy theological impulse. Um, but it, it's something that as I read this section, like, Ooh, I, I am struggling with this idea that. So I do now constantly and shall do in the course of time that as I, as I read that, I'm there's there is there is a voice telling me to doubt mm -hmm. whether that is the case. Mm -hmm. Um and I don't know what to do with that. Well, she frames it as as um terrible things happen to us because of our evil deeds, because of our sins, and then a miracle comes along and shows us the reality of God and that helps us out of our sins. And okay. I mean, for me, this is a little thing. This isn't something that's going to be on the news. This isn't something that I can even talk about, mm. but I know what happens to me or what I do. And then And then a change happens and and it's over. And that's that's a miracle for me. Mm -hmm. But obviously this isn't like a biblical miracle. This isn't mm -hmm. the Red Sea. This isn't mm -hmm. you know, the, the frogs or the loaves and the fishes. It's mm -hmm. not it's not it's not that at all. So Yeah. I think I might be struggling with the word miracle. And and that biblical proportion that it conjures, right? Of course, um, yeah. Which might be something to hash out with my spiritual director, and not on a podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> podcast in the new spiritual direction. Um, There's an idea. So, um, is it because that label? 
miracle feels too supernatural to you? Not to me. It doesn't feel too supernatural to me. It's because I think, you know, as Jayan pointed out, a miracle, if that word seems to imply something big, big, worldwide big, you know, nationwide, population-wide big. I'm waiting for an answer from Jan, and he's uh, he's puzzling it over. I think um, not too supernatural, but like the, the objection that rises up in me to it is that it's too convenient. Oh. Too convenient. What is that? Um, mean? Damned if I know. Um, <laughs> like that. There's that. Um. Uh, is it a Far Side cartoon where there's a, two scientists standing at a blackboard and the, the blackboard is filled with, um, with uh, formulas and equations and things, and then right in the middle of it, it just says, "And here a miracle happens." <laughs> Is it like like that like it's it it allows God to just kind of um, bend the rules to fit his own plot or something I legitimately don't know <laughs> i so, i need to i need to work on this well We'll work on what you work on. So I, you know, I, so I think there's two possible answers and one comes from, I think, um, Julian often gives us her own working definitions. Like as far as Julian is concerned, a miracle is those things that nudge us back into faith. Mm. Um, so she says, you know, it is known mm-hmm that before miracles come sorrow and anguish and tribulation, and that is so that we would know our own feebleness and our misfortune that have fallen into by sin. And, and then the miracles happen, and then suddenly we're able to perceive the goodness and bounty and mercy and um, wisdom of God. So... Basically, whenever you make that move in your life or you see it in someone else's life, somehow a miracle was in, involved there. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. So almost like the resurrection itself, like Rowan Williams has this whole thing in his um, one of his books on the resurrection, that there's a silence around the resurrection itself that is very mysterious. That there's, We're told all the action that goes up to the ceiling of the tomb, and then we're told all the action that happens once the tomb is opened, but there's absolutely no data given to us anywhere in scripture about what actually happens as Jesus is, is rising. We're just told about, you know, either side of that event. And so in the middle, there's this curious absence where the mystery is. So applying that to this, wherever that movement of being kind of, 
wallowed and miring and sorrow and anguish and tribulation. And then you've done it yourself. We've all done it. Suddenly it feels like there's a shift in perception somewhere in there is, is a miracle. I think so often it feels miraculous when it happens in my life because I often can't attribute it to anything like directly causal. You know, I'm, I'm filled, I'm saturated with all these techniques that people give me. Oh, when you feel this way, do this. If you want to improve, you know, go for, get some exercise or, you know, um, take a couple of days off. That's the one that I'm getting all the time now. Um, take a couple of days off or adjust your diet or, you know, quit doing this or start doing that. And then that will hack your mood. And so often people that I know, and it's true in my own life as well, I do those things and they don't seem to have any impact. And then when I'm not consciously trying to do anything different, I just wake up one day or like in the course of an afternoon, my whole field of perception will shift and it feels like nothing that I did. So it's got to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. I can call that a a miracle. Yeah. That that working definition of something that nudges us back to faith vibes with me. It it works. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It, um, which makes me think like it might actually be the word miracle and whatever content I'm assigning to it. That is the stumbling block because, because what you're naming makes sense and is something that I've experienced. I mean, I've shared, I've shared things like that about that on this podcast. Absolutely. So is sign John's word, the word in St. John's gospel, does sign work better? If you think of these things that I think, and it's, it's the same thing that, Julian is talking about perceptible actions of the will of God that cause you to notice God's presence and, and action. We were talking about this before we started recording. Where do you see God at work in the world around you? Which is kind of irritating to all three of us in some contexts. But occasionally God does make the divine presence known. Yeah, as, as I, the, the word the word sign actually sits way better with me. Yeah. Um, which might just be I'm, I don't know, maybe it's baggage that I have from my evangelical past that the word miracle. But what what you're describing, what you're kind of the working definition you're pulling out of Julian um makes sense and resonates and under the name sign resonates powerfully. So Okay. Language matters. All right. Well, God reminded me that I would sin. You personally? We all need Julian that. and all generally. <laughs> <laughs> I love this sentence. Um, the way the way she opens chapter 37 is just such a delightful couple of sentences to me. God reminded me that I would sin. And because of the delight that I had in gazing upon him, I did not pay heed quickly to that showing. And our Lord most mercifully waited and gave me grace to listen. 
that that image of Julian looking in delight and not paying attention to this this other reality that, that she would sin and God just waiting mercifully and patiently for her to listen. It's, it's, it's a beautiful image to me um, that I can, I can see, I can, it's easy for me to visualize Julian like beaming with joy, looking at this thing and God waiting, mm-hmm. just waiting for her to, to listen to the full picture. The fact that she gives us that scenario to me shows how honest she is. She could have just as easily gone right into the thing about how everyone will sin and God will keep us full safely as she, as she continues on to say, but she, she paints this picture of her process of receiving this information, receiving this insight and, and, putting it away at arm's length as we do sometimes when God says things to us, we just say, okay, um, not right now. Thank you. I'm busy thinking about something else. And then God waiting and bringing it forward to her again, when she was ready. It's, it's a very, very true and honest and lovely, lovely little bit of story there for me. And of course, she means everybody would sin, not just she herself. This is what God meant. She be, she accepts it on behalf of all her fellow Christians. Right. Um, she, I, I, I love the image. Like Julian is our representative in all oh, of this. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. She is. Well, again, I think there's... Um, I can think of examples of, of people and in my own life where there's some, um, a certain uh, kind of school girl, school boy crush that we can get into when we first make our beginning steps into the, into the religious life. We kind of discover church in a new way. Um, or the, the path of our, whatever our spirituality is in a new way. And it feels initially like we finally come home and found what we were looking for. And there's a great sense of consolation at first, the number of people who walk in to an Episcopal church and say, Oh, I feel like I've been looking for something like this my whole life which is just kind of a testament to how bad we often are at evangelism because we mm. could be getting out there in front of people with, with what we do a little bit better. Um, but so there's this, there's very often this sense of, of coming home and this, this uh, yeah, this, this delight in gazing upon him can feel awfully beguiling. And it would be nice if like, so we enter into the lobby of, the vast mansion of faith and we are wowed by the marble and we are taken in by the, the air conditioning because it's so hot outside, right? We walk in through the door and we see this beautiful lobby um, and we feel like we've arrived. 
but there's a whole rest of the mansion to go through and it uh there's there's also work to be done mm-hmm. so yeah so i think it is wise of god <laughs> i can't believe i'm yeah thank you for being so wise god i'm proud of you um that god lets julian have this delight in gazing upon christ um for as long as she needs and then gently says all right we also have to talk about sin like we've got work to do so enjoy gazing upon me for you know for now and when you are ready (laughs) um then we will start talking about the reality of sin because it's it's also no good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even in that, she he uh, reminds her that uh, we are e- even in this gentle anxiety, we are answered that we are kept full safely. Um. So even in that, like, we still have work to do. There's this tenderness um, that, uh, you know, it's, it strikes me as uh, Luther in his conversation, in his conversations about the, the anxiety that comes with sin and then looking, and then the comfort and looking to the gospel, that vacillation that he describes, there's a, there's a severity, there's a whiplash in his, dis, in his discussions of that. Um, particularly in what happens when he gets swept up in, in thinking about sin and sinfulness. And here I see the same kind of um, vacillation of our attention. Um, but in, in, in our consideration of the sin, I see this softness, this gentleness that is no less serious for Julian, but is um, it is uh, it is less less severe than some of the formulations of this kind of vacillating gaze that I see in the spiritual life. Does that make any sense? Like, no, like Luther, I, I, I love Luther's kind of descriptions of looking, turning back to the gospel and that, that constant journey of turning back. Um, but his, uh, the way, the way he describes looking at sin is stark and sharp in a way that I think Julian provides an alternative to. There's a fascinating anthropology in here in the middle of chapter 37 that I uh, love and like to chew on when I reread this. What can make me love my fellow Christians more than to see in God that he loves all that shall be saved as if they were all one soul? I mean, that's great right there. But then 
here's one of Julian's descriptions of the human being. For in every soul that shall be saved is a divine will that never consented to sin nor ever shall. Just as there is a savage will in the lower part of man that can will no good. So too, there is a divine will in the higher part of man, which will be, which is so good that it can never will evil, but always good. So what does it mean to us to think of, to imagine ourselves as these, this landscape where there is some part of us that is impossible, that it is impossible for that part of us to ever be good. That there's some part that is completely corrupted. But then there's also some part of us, not only the divine will, but also the higher part of man, the higher part of of the human essence that is so good that it can never be corrupted. And we live somewhere most of the time um, with a foot in uh, on either side. I'm trying to think of the metaphor, but it's, uh, um, and it's remarkably balanced, but it's also remarkably spread apart as well, if that makes sense. Well, she never says that it's 50-50. Right. She doesn't. But it's not like we're all living right at the, um, in the heart of the bell curve. I've just been looking at a book on statistics, so I have this <laughs> you know, bell curve in okay. my mind that, um, that the standard deviation is quite a high number when it comes to it. <laughs> so we're um, – that – within each of us is the, the full spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think Jung would have a field day with. But I, um, yeah, there, there feels something very profound in it that I can't quite put my finger on. It doesn't feel like what she says there, that there's some part of us that is incapable of doing good, and there's also some part of us that is incapable of ever willing anything evil. That doesn't sound like the kind of things you hear in contemporary society to me. Which kind of things? Um, the kind of things you hear from advertising, which <laughs> is mm. that everybody uh, deserves more than they do, maybe. <laughs> mm. Everybody deserves whatever their hearts desire, uh, or that you are good enough, or that you're not good enough. And I think we hear all sorts of messages that are trying to put ourselves or other human beings into a very narrow part of that spectrum. Um, 
some, you know, some of the very uh, positive messages that are out there are saying, you know, no matter what the rest of society tells you, you are inherently good or worthy or something to the point that it is like, like once you undo the damage of society's programming and you're free of all the shame, you will realize that there's absolutely no bad part of you. You're, Hmm. you're, you're infinite in value and worth. And it's kind of like leaning towards the new age Mm -hmm. um, messaging that we're surrounded by this kind of field of, of shame filled messages. And once you, get away from those and you will discover that that you're only living at one end of that spectrum Hmm. consequent you know on the other side of it there's plenty of stuff plenty of stuff where we're trying to put usually trying to put other people at the far bad end of the spectrum Mm -hmm. i just got into this conversation with with a friend of mine um who for the last couple of months has been posting variations on ACAB, you know, all cops are bastards because that's, you know, he's stuck firmly into this, um, this uh, activism uh, against police violence, which I think is a worthy and noble cause, but he's basically, and this is what I was talking to him about that. He, he is at a place right now where he cannot see any good in any law enforcement officer at all, that there's just like, it doesn't exist. It's impossible to be a police officer and have any shred of decency in you as a Mm. human being. So that's like from where he is right now, he's putting this whole category of humanity firmly at this. There's, you know, there's no good in you. Um, So these narrow slices of the spectrum of human reality, and then Julian comes along and says, look, the revelation that I've had from God is that within each of us is the whole spectrum, mm-hmm. which is, it, it just feels different mm-hmm. and refreshing to me to be mm-hmm. honest about that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's enlightening to be able <clears throat> to look at someone that you despise, say, for instance, if it were a public figure, and realize that that person has something in them that cannot sin, that is good, that that person is a beloved child of God, that God looks at that person with love just the way that God looks at me with love and at Jay and at Chris with love. And that's very... That's a big thing. I mean, that, that is, that's something worth thinking about, and that's something worth, worth, worth pondering over. And certainly, I don't think it's hard to imagine. It might not be what we think about all the time. But if we think about someone that we love very much, that we admire very much, that we feel is... Um, just a hero or a heroine uh, to think that there is, there is something in that person that cannot will good, that cannot, that there is a little nubbin in that person that always directs that person to evil, to sin, 
And that is also, you know, that, that is also a big thing. Um, I, I think it's important to see that, to be able to see that in people. Um, Julian says that God keeps us safe from that, that nubbin of ourselves that always wants to do evil. Not that everybody is equally able to resist that, but that it won't, it won't overwhelm us. It won't defeat us. That little tiny nubbin of evil in us will not defeat us, no matter how much we give into it. That is a very big thing. Um, you know, as far as categories of people, um, like all all law enforcement uh, people are are evil because of whatever reason you want to say the history, the culture, whatever. Um, you just you just can't do that. I mean, to me, that's just you just can't do that. I mean, you can't say that all priests are good. You can't say that all nuns are good. I mean, I would say that, but I know I shouldn't. And you can't say that all politicians are bad. I mean, you just you just can't do that. That's just that's just a no from me. In terms of categories of people, grocery store clerks, politicians, nurses, whoever, bishops, I don't care. They're all everybody's fine. Ultimately. That um, that bit of recognizing that even the people who are most despicable in your sight have that bit that can not will evil is uh, good and powerful and productive because it, it is because of that that we all, we 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 men humans generally all are what God loves. Um, You know, it's uh, because of my background, that is the hard part to believe. Um, I, (laughs) I am for all my like theological shifting. I have a very easy time with this idea that, there is nothing in us that can will good. Um, there, I, I mean, the Calvinism really sinks into your bones. This total, de- this idea of total depravity that there is nothing in us that can ever will good. Um, and so the 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 uh, difficult beauty in this is that there is something in everybody that cannot will evil. Um, and that that is what God looks at and that not only does that, is that what God looks at, but because of that, God loves us as well now as he will when we are face to face with him. Not only, not only is that nubbin, not only am I, not entirely contained in that bit that cannot will good, but there is a bit that cannot will evil and it 
that bit is what God looks at. And because of that bit, God loves me and even the people that I despise as well now as he will after this great deed. Um, that's the, that's the thing that turns everything upside down for me in this, in a beautiful way. I don't, I don't mean that it's distressing. It is just, um, an upheaval of the narratives that I have received. And so this is, this is the beauty for me in the revelations is that, um, you know, there, there is, this is what God looks at. Um, yeah. So because of the falling away from love on our part from that is all our difficulty. And that's how chapter 37 ends. We're right in the middle of this, uh, this reflection on sin that, that Julian is making. We'll pick up with it the next time we meet. Um, Yeah. So the, I guess the, my final thought is that, that I, it's refreshing to me that um, in Julian, in Revelations, there's a recognition of the reality of sin. Sin really is, is a thing that exists and is bad. And because of sin, there really is suffering that happens to us. And there's a portion within each of us that is responsible for sin. So we're not blameless, but the fact that we are in inevitably sinful does not make us worthless or unlovable. So this is like the first step, the first of the baby steps that Julian makes in placing our worth, our value, our essential place within God's heart in relationship to our, to, to the moral judgment of our behaviors that we can take a, a stern look, a harsh look at the things we do and the consequences of the things we do without it actually having any impact on our worth as people. But that is also refreshing because mm -hmm. there's precious little of that around us these days. And it's, it's sometimes very hard to find in the church, but it's almost impossible to find in the secular world. The idea that no matter what somebody does, that it doesn't destroy something essential about their good worth just as a creation of God. Um, I mean, it's the complete opposite of cancel culture. Um, so that's, that's my last thought on where we are here in chapter 36 and 37. Anything else from, from you two? Just that last sentence. 
that our difficulty arises from our falling away of this love that is already there. This, this again, this theme that this love is there. This love is as strong as it ever has been and ever will be. Um, and God is calling us, nudging our gaze back at it. Um, because our folly is when we look away. When we look away from love incarnate on the cross. Our, our savior and our salvation is ever before us. But in our folly, we sometimes look away. And that's where our difficulty arises. And that is what God, through Julian, is nudging us away from. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the Revelations of Divine Love, the Order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.